Good to see all of you gathered together this morning. It's been a wonderful two weeks where I was able to take a break from the pulpit. And uh, Pastor Marcus and Jason did a wonderful job uh, filling in for me. It's good to be back. Um, for the next several weeks, we're going to camp out on Titus chapter 2. So if you'd open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, and we'll read together verses 1 through 15. Let's stand together. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Please be seated. We spent nine weeks nine sermons on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And before we move on to First Peter, I felt compelled to do a study on the fundamental practices of the Christian faith. You know, use it or lose it. We've been fed well for nine weeks. We've got some good nutrients in our spiritual bodies. But that is not enough. We need to put these things into practice. We need to be doers of the Word of God. We need to apply these truths to our lives. And I couldn't think of a better place to go than Titus chapter 2 because Paul here gives tailor-made instructions for six groups of people in the church. And you will find that each of you will fit into at least one of these categories. 
at least one. Paul talks about older men and the marks of godly older men. He talks about older women and the qualities that older women are to exemplify in the church, in the community, and at home to adorn these doctrines in their lives. Paul gives tailor-made instructions to younger men. And I like Paul's just um, surgical precision in his exhortation to younger men. Just be self-controlled, right? Like, get your life in order. I know you want to win the world for Christ. I I know you want to do all these things with your life. But just before you do all these things throughout the world for Christ and you know, for, for life and family, get your life in order. He addresses younger women. And then he addresses um, spiritual leaders. How elders, pastors, you know, in our, our context, flock shepherds, how small group leaders, how ministry leaders, how we are to conduct ourselves in the church. And then the final category applies to Almost all of us, um, slaves, workers, employees, how you are to conduct yourselves in the workplace, especially as you relate to those who are over you. So after a nine-part study of the fundamental doctrines, at least a seven-part study on fundamental practices, fundamental characteristics of right life. It applies to the children here. Um, elementary, junior high students, high school students, all the way to older men and women in our church. A brief background on the book of Titus. Titus was a co-worker of Paul. He was left behind in the island of Crete. And Paul left him behind with a clear purpose. Chapter 1, verse 5, Paul reminds Titus why he was left behind on this island. I left you behind, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Churches have been established in this island, but these churches had many significant needs. They needed spiritual leaders. They needed to grow and mature in their faith. They needed to, they needed their church to be put in order. A right practice in the context of the church. And so in order to encourage and instruct him in the task, the Apostle Paul wrote Titus this letter. And this letter is not intended just for him, but also for all the churches. Paul intended Titus to read this letter in the congregation so that they would know why Titus was doing what he was doing. They would know the basis of his instructions. If you go to chapter 1, you'll find that it is focused on the leaders of the church. So Paul is telling Titus, when you start a church, when you work in a church, when you minister in a church, the first place you start is with the leaders. The church will, will stand and fall with the leadership of the church. And to the, the surest way to ensure failure in the context of the church is by having unqualified men 
hold positions of leadership. So Titus, here are the, here is a list of, of qualifications for elders in the church. And he just starts off by focusing on the leaders to make sure that they are up to par with the standards of God. That we must not compromise on these qualities, on these characteristics. The church must have, I know the church is captive to a low standard or a non-standard for leaders, but the church must hold on to high standards, biblical standards for leadership. And thus, in chapter 1, Paul instructs Titus on the distinguishing traits of a man that uniquely qualifies him for the role and ministry of eldership in the church. And then he moves on in chapter 2. He moves on from pastors to people, from the elders to everybody, to lead, from leaders to the laity. Four C's that will help us navigate through chapter 2 of Titus. Four C's, contrast, command, conclusion, and character. Contrast, commands, conclusions, and character. Paul contrasts Titus with false teachers. Paul commands Titus. Paul gives conclusions, the purposes of these commands. And then Paul gives the character that believers are to adorn in their lives. Let's begin with chapter 2, verse 1. Contrast. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Titus. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Look at those first four words. But as for you. By using that conjunction, that first word but, to begin his sentence, the apostle is setting up a contrast. Paul is contrasting Titus, his life, his ministry, from the false teachers he just talked about in chapter 1 verse 16. He's talking about these false teachers whose minds and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable men, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul uses strong words to describe these false teachers. They are detestable. Objects of disgust. Abominable. They are also disobedient. The Greek word denotes someone who is unpersuadable. Unwilling to hear, unwilling to obey. They are stubborn, resolute, settled in their disobedience. They cannot be persuaded. You can talk to them, shepherd them, teach them the whole counsel of God's word. And they are settled in their disobedience. There are stiff-necked people who will not be moved to obey God. And finally, they are unfit for any good work. They are worthless for any good work. They bring no good benefit to the church. The word is a dokumos. They are tested and found unworthy. The word was used in, uh, in a construction uh, idea 
When a stone was not fit to put into a building, it was cast aside. If there was a crack, a serious flaw, you were to use this stone, it would be a detriment to the whole building itself. So the builders would set it aside and throw it away. This word is used for these false teachers. They were examined, they were tested, and they are hadakimas. They are unfit, they are unworthy. They are to be thrown away, they are useless. Why? Why are these men detestable? Why are they adokimas, unfit? Because they teach things. They were teaching things they were not supposed to be teaching. They ought not be teaching. They were teaching deceptive lies. They were caught up in man-made myths. Human commandments. They were going away from the truths of God's word. And they were leading others to do the same. So after Paul describing these false teachers, Paul turns to Titus and he says, but as for you, setting a contrast, instead of giving unsound teaching, unhealthy teaching, instead of being detestable, disobedient, worthless, Titus, be different. And here is the command. He contrasts Titus and then he commands him, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus, instead of them, now you, I have this command for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The word teacher is very informative. It's interesting, it's informative. Paul does not use the Greek word didaskaleo, which is teaching. He does not use the word for preaching, kerusa. He uses the word laleo, which is speaking. Speak the words. Speak those things that fit right doctrine. It tells us that Paul has in mind something beyond the pulpit. It encompasses the pulpit, but Paul is telling Titus to talk about these things all the time. All the time. Constantly speak. Constantly teach, exhort, encourage people. Not sound doctrine. Not the Word of God. He's not telling Titus, teach the Word, teach truth. Teach healthy doctrine, no. And that's why we, we chose Titus 2. Because Paul is telling Titus, and therefore I'm telling you, to teach that which fits sound doctrine. He already covered sound doctrine in chapter 1, verse 9. What he is saying now in 2, verse 1, is that you must speak the things which are properly associated with sound doctrine. Those things that deal with life. Teach, Titus, the practical requirements for everyday life that suit true doctrine. Titus, teach the life that accords with sound doctrine. Teach the practices, the characteristics, the qualities that are, that are consistent with right doctrine. First Timothy 4.16 i repeat it here again and again. Right doctrine and right life. 
I mean, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? You know, when I was, um, when we were planning the church, our foundation of this church was right doctrine. The Word of God. That was our highest value, highest priority. The elders and leaders gathered around and, and said, we've compromised for too long. We're starting a church. And let's stand here and let's not move. Let us not compromise on the Word of God. And if everybody leaves, so be it. Here we stand. You know, our, our own little uh, Lutheran Reformation here in the corner of Orange County. Here we stand. We can do no other. Well, after several years, we realized, wow, like, sound doctrine is great. It's the cry of our hearts. But it's only the first step. We must take the next step of right life, living out these truths personally in our lives, in our families, and in the church. Without it, it undermines sound doctrine. Now, what is right life? To me, I have a very simple uh, uh, definition. Doing whatever it takes. Having the mindset to do whatever it takes to obey right doctrine. Right, Not letting life dictate to us our lives. Not letting life dictate to us our decisions. Having that radical mindset, I will, ha- I will do whatever it takes to honor right doctrine. Honor the Word of God. I will not be perfect. I will not succeed every time. But the mindset is, I will try my best to do whatever it takes to make decisions that will affirm sound doctrine And that is how we've come thus far. These have been the twin pillars of Cornerstone Bible Church. The foundation is Christ. The cornerstone is Christ. The capstone is Christ. But the twin pillars that are built on top of the foundation of Christ, the twin pillars that hold the capstone, which is Christ, is right doctrine and right life. Without one, the whole building falls apart. Our church falls apart. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here in Titus 2. Titus, you're building a church in a frontline area, in a, in a wicked environment. You need to do both. You need to teach sound doctrine and teach that which accords with sound doctrine. The word accords, the, the Greek word is prepo. It basically means proper, seemly, or consistent. You need to tell them the things they need to do that fit the doctrine they believe. There are specific behaviors, characteristics, life marks, if you will, that fit our doctrine. Titus, you must model it and you must teach it to them. And this is seen throughout the scriptures. Matthew 28, verse 20. The Great Commission. Right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you. Is that right? Did I quote verse 20 right? If you know verse 20, you will say, Pastor James did it again. Misquoting the Bible. Right? Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. It's not just, you know, just transmit information, right? Just write books, write manuscripts, 
Go up there and read commentaries. Disseminate knowledge. That's your work. No. Our work as pastors is to teach people to obey the Word of God. So much like parenting. All the parents understand what we're talking about. We, when we have children, we don't, just giving them information doesn't work. We need to teach them to obey. Teach them, right? I mean, to go to the bathroom. Teach them to eat. Teach them to sleep. How to sleep. How to wake up. How to dress. We need to train them in all these things. Likewise in the church. That's why Romans, Paul spent 11 chapters on high theology. Right? On Calvinistic theology, I would say. And then 12 through 16 in application. See, doctrine is the foundation, but it must go to practice. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3, all theology, all doctrine. People say, people want to skip it. No, it's just boring. No, without it, sound life is not possible. Sound life will become a source for pride without, without truth. The foundation must be Christ. But then you must go to 4, 5, and 6 applying these truths. Same thing in Philippians. Same thing in Colossians. This is so basic. The book of James. James encapsulates it so well in verse 22, chapter 1. Be doers of the Word of God. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves to what it says. James understands the power of our flesh, the deceptive nature of our flesh, that if we just sit and listen to sermons and we do not obey, our flesh deceives us and it pumps us up and causes us to be proud and leads us away from God. The actual truths of God's Word will lead us away from God if we do not obey its truths. So he has a simple formula. Listen to God's Word and do what it says. Do what it says. But this command is not given to the church in Titus 2.1. This command is given to all elders, pastors, in our context, flock shepherds, small group leaders. This exhortation is to you. He's talking to the shepherds, to the leaders, because he's commissioning us to speak the things 24-7, the life that fits right doctrine, that we must not have a professional attitude or mindset towards ministry. We must not be uh, professors. Right? I mean, junior high, high school teachers, they're good. elementary teachers are great because they care that you learn. Right? You have teachers here. You care that your students learn the ABCs. Go to junior high. They're less nice, but they're still nice. They still love us. They teach, teach us. High school, you know, you know, less nice, but still they care about you. You go to college, they don't care about you at all. You're a number. Here's the info. Whether you learn it or not, it's up to you. Right? No skin off my back. You want personal time with me? Are you kidding? Right? Here's the book. You know, you research it, you, you're responsible for the information. And is that our mindset in the church? Where we are just teaching from a distance and we don't care? We are not responsible for our members learning and practicing 
these truths? No. We are to be shepherds, good shepherds. We are commanded by God to study Scripture, to obey it, Ezra 7.10, right? Apply it to our lives, and then teach it, and then go the extra step of shepherding people to train them in righteousness. So, for all of you, all of you who are in ministry, this is, this is for you, this is for me. We need to get down and dirty with our people. You want to be shepherds? You got to care for sheep. The sheep are dirty, right? You need to get dirty with them, right? You need to get in the dirt and get dirty yourself, right? We can't um, care for people from a distance. Ah, uh, a little weird illustration, vivid in my mind, because it happened this morning, right? You know, wake up and our, our, you know, Roger, that kid. Boys and girls are so different, you know, girls. They go in their diaper real nicely, a little clean package, right? It just, it's so, it's almost sweet. And then boys just explode. And this boy wake up this morning and like, he just exploded overnight. That's why I was late to church, right? So like, I'm like, Soren, <laughs> But you can, we can't, we can't be parents and, and not want to get dirty, right? Not smell foul things. That's part of parenting, right? That's the, the price you pay for the joy of parenting as well. Likewise with ministry. Right? We just want clean people. We want people who are, you know, sweet and nice and obedient and just, you know, our life's in order. And we go away from people who kind of explode, right? And you find them with all this mess around them. But that's why we're here. That's why... God has called us. That is our calling. That is our privilege, our, 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 our responsibility to teach them, to model to them, and to train them the practices, the qualities, the characteristics that fit right doctrine. We are not to teach them from a distance. We are not just to teach and leave, keep an arm's distance from people we are shepherding. If you love Christ, and if you love Christ's Word, and if you love Christ's people, you will joyfully, willingly get down and dirty, get involved in people's lives, and dealing not just with doctrine. You know, doctrine is so simple. It's not simple, but it's, it's, it's clearer. It's more linear. It's, it's, it's easier. Right? It's just, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We almost want to stay in that area of ministry because it's um, it's neater. But if we're shepherds, we must go to the other side of shepherding people in their lives. Right. I mean, this is, I believe, one of the reasons for the health, vitality of Cornerstone. Because from the beginning, our agenda was just to love our people. You know, we didn't want to grow. We didn't have an agenda to build a church. You know, get a lot of people in our in the doors and grow as a church. Our agenda was, you know, we'll stand before the Lord. All we want to do is love Christ, follow Christ, and and shepherd the people that God has entrusted to us. And giving ourselves fully to 
uh, shepherding and caring for each soul, knowing that not only will we give an account for each soul before Christ, but whatever we do to the least of our brethren, we do it, we're doing it to Christ. That we are all little Christ. And if I fail to sh- care and shepherd and love you, then I'm doing that to Christ. And that was our initial vision. And I believe that is what has carried us to this day. Now, it has definitely changed. Through the growth of our church, the dynamic of shepherding has changed, but it still occurs. We're now, I mean, I, I, mean, I want to shepherd each of you. Bob does as well. But it's just logistically not possible. So Bob and I, you know what we do? Man, we go after the pastors and the flock shepherds. Ask them, did James ever rebuke you? Right? James, Bob ever correct you? And they will tell you all the time, right? Every time we meet, they love us so much. They care for us so much. They don't care for the church for us. They don't care about the numbers. They care for me. And I know they're praying for me. They're thinking about me. And they're encouraging me and also correcting me. And they in turn do that to you love you and care for you and shepherd you in that way. All because of the Scriptures, because of Titus 2.1. We are to be more than teachers. We need to be shepherds up close and personal. And we need to encourage, but also... we must, and we're engaged in doing the hard work of rebuking. Right? Rebuking. And it's a joy, brothers and sisters. When some, someone in your life rebukes you, not about, like, you know, something dumb, like, whatever, right? Something like superficial, temporal. When they rebuke you about your character, about your attitude, about your walk with Christ, Man, you are so blessed to have someone love you so much. For someone who cares for you to that degree. Because if you've ever tried to correct anyone, you know how hard it is. You know the question is, do I love him enough or not? My life, I'm busy. I've got my own problems. I've got my own worries. And my question is, man, do I love him? Right? Do I, do I care for him? And sometimes, not really. Right? I don't want to care for him. I, I've got so many things to do. But if I do, then I must go that extra step. You are so blessed. That's why Paul says in Titus 2.15, because of your love for Christ, love for these people, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. These things again, all the qualities, all the right life issues, with the six categories of people in the church. Declare these things to the church. Exhort them. It's positive. Come alongside these people. Urge them. Encourage them. Compel, admonish them in a positive way. This idea of calling, calling someone like you're a coach. Come on, you can do this. Pleading with them. Begging them. For the sake of Christ. To do these things. But if they will not listen, 
if they if they are obstinate, if they are stiff-necked, if they are hard-hearted, if they will not be open to you, don't back down. Don't say, well, you know, I did my best, Lord, you know. I taught, I begged, they didn't obey, they'll stand before you. No, they will not listen. You need to go to the next step. The negative approach, rebuke them. Rebuke them. The word has the idea of confronting someone face to face. That is why I believe Paul did not use the word Caruso. He doesn't want pastors to stand behind the pulpit in the corporate setting and rebuke people. Sometimes I want to, but that's not right. That's abusing the pulpit. I am here to teach the word of God. I want to honor you. I want to protect you. And we never want to stand up here and embarrass anyone, confront anyone, use it as a soapbox, rebuke anyone. We want to just teach the Word, let the Word of God do its work. But in personal shepherding, in the privacy of one-to-one relationships, Paul sing laleo. Speak the things that fit right doctrine and exhort them. You know, encourage them, compel them, beg them. But if they are not inclined to you, then you need to rebuke them face to face. When you're with them in their home, in their kitchen, when you're driving with them in a car, after Bible study, they're staying over. Rebuke them. Rebuke them with all authority. I love that. All authority. What is that authority? Is that your office? Is it your title? Is it your associations? I don't know if this makes sense or not. I asked her and she didn't know either. I was going to ask Jason, but didn't have time. We have a tripartite authority. Is that right, Jason? If it's wrong, you know, ask him later, right? A three-pronged authority in the church. The first authority we have is the Word of God. We are not to admonish people outside the Scriptures. If what we're admonishing is consistent with the Word of God, then we must, with the authority of Scripture, admonish and rebuke people. Secondly, by our own lives. We should model the Word of God. First Thessalonians. Right? We share with you not just the Gospel, but our lives as well. You know how we lived among you while we were with you. So we gain authority, we gain respect, we gain trust by our lives. And with that authority, you admonish, exhort, and rebuke. And thirdly, third authority is relational. By your proven, demonstrated love for them, by your personal care, by your relationship with them, to that degree, you have the authority to rebuke them. And Paul, that's why he came and spent three years with Thessalonians. And he said, I could have come and asserted my authority as an apostle, but I didn't. I came to you as a mother, loving you, gentle. I came to you as a father, caring for you personally, earning that respect, earning that trust, so that I might teach, admonish, and rebuke with all authority. And I suppose that is why we have that authority in the church. Your elders, your pastors, your shepherds, because we have authority from Scripture. But you see our lives. We are open books to you. We don't, you know, preach. And I don't 
you know, disappear behind the curtain. You know, we don't like teach you to flock and close the doors and ask you to leave. We share, you see how we live. Right? You, 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 you know our decisions. Our lives are an open book. And, and beyond that, we seek to have a personal relationship with you over the long haul. I married Shane yesterday. You know, I'm not a cessationist anymore. I believe in miracles, right? <laughs> After yesterday, I woke up in the morning. I said, Jesus is coming back, you know, but he didn't. So, But I've known Shane for 12 years, right? 12 long years. So you better believe after all those years I have gained, we have gained authority from Scripture, authority from our lives, and authority from our relationship to go to Shane and exhort him and rebuke him. If after that he despises us, Paul says, let no one despise you. Let no one despise you. And that is... The second command here. Right. Second command. The word disregard is paraphernal. It's a compound word. Peri is some circumference outside of th- something. And phroneo is think. Don't let them think outside of you. Think around you. Don't let them circumvent you. And Titus, they'll do that. Right? They'll... When you go to them, when you just teach doctrine, they'll smile and, you know, they'll be nice and they'll be happy. But when you get into their kitchen and start shepherding their lives, we, we know their strategy. They'll, they'll paraphernalia you. They'll disregard you and they'll say, who died and made you king? What authority do you have? You are too young. Right? You're inexperienced. You're not an ordained pastor. You're not a full-time pastor. You're not seminary trained. You're not, you know, dot, 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 add. You know, you guys know, right, what, you, what, we, what we use to circumvent those who are in authority over us. Don't let them do that. Don't let anyone try to evade these commands via at hominem attacks. Right. Don't let them think around you. Don't allow them to put an evasive course justifying and rationalizing their disobedience. He's saying essentially, Titus, don't back down. Remember, he said the same thing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12. Right. Don't let anyone look down upon you because you're young. Right. Set an example. Engage them in ministry. Right. So this call is Titus. Don't don't back down. Don't allow them to paraphernalia you. But also, Paul wanted this letter to be read in the churches. So in a way, it was a command to the churches to not disregard Titus. It is a command to you not to paraphernalia your leaders, those who are over you, those who are caring and shepherding you. Paul is telling us, you better not disregard what Titus is saying. Scripture is not a book of suggestions. 
It is not a book of insights. It is a book of commands. Let no one disregard you is really a warning to anyone who is entertaining thoughts of ignoring Titus' commands with the authority of Scripture. In Luke 10, verse 16, our Lord said, The one who listens to you, listens to me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. What does this mean? Our Lord is saying, if they listen to you, they're listening to me. Our Lord is saying, if they reject you, within the authority of Scripture, they are rejecting me. Contrast, command, conclusion. Paul gives us in this chapter the purposes of these commands. The purposes. Paul says that these things that accord with sound doctrine must be taught by Titus, must be obeyed by Christians because there are serious consequences to disobedience. It's imperative that older men are known by these qualities. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and on. Imperative that older women are priest-like. They're reverent in their behavior. It is essential that younger women are self-controlled, lovers of home, submissive to their husbands. It's key that younger men are self-controlled. Important that pastors are dignified and sober. That, that workers are not pilfering. That they honor those that are over them imperative because wrong lives have grave consequences. The issue is how our lives impact others. The compelling issue here is what it does for others if we do not obey the Word of God. Paul emphasizes obedience because of the serious ramifications that it has towards others. This is stated in three purpose clauses in this chapter. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 10. Look at verse 5. In order that the word of God may not word of God may not be reviled. The word of God may not be reviled. The first compelling issue here is the honor of the word of God. So that the word of God may not be dishonored, maligned. The word here is the word for blaspheme, disdained, rejected, treated as a lie, disregarded, mocked, shunned, ignored. In other words, how you live will directly determine how people view the word of God. How you and I live directly impacts the world's view of God's word. And so if a Christian wife is not who she ought to be, if a Christian young man, an older man, an old, older woman, the result is people malign the Word of God. People blaspheme it. People say, look at the Word. The Word of God is not true. It's not about us. 
It's about God's Word. Because the world doesn't care about our doctrine. They don't care about our theology. They care about our practices. They do not scrutinize our doctrine. They scrutinize our lives. And if our lives are not God-honoring, it gives them every opportunity, every license to attack the Word of God. We're giving them ammunition to shoot down the Scriptures. Because they judge the validity of the Scriptures by our behavior. They judge whether the Bible is true or not. Whether the Bible is powerful or not. Whether the Bible actually changes lives or not by our behavior, by our lives. Pastor MacArthur, the world will judge the Gospel by the character of the people who believe it. By the character of the people who believe it. There are some graphic illustrations of this in the Bible. Remember 2 Samuel 12, David sinned with Bathsheba. Prophet Nathan, godly, courageous man, goes to David and says, You are that man. You are the one. Your ways are in plain sight of Yahweh. And I've come to confront you, rebuke you in your sin. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. There is forgiveness for the sinner. Look at the result. 12.14 However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. God will forgive your sin But your sin has made the Gentiles, the unbelievers, blaspheme God. Do you see the connection there? What happens when we sin? What happens when we live compromised and worldly lives? They blaspheme the Lord. They blaspheme the Word of God by mocking the Word, depreciating its power. They don't really judge us. They don't necessarily revile us. But they condemn the Word of God at every opportunity when Christians do not live by the Word of God. Romans 2.24 talking talking about the Jews, Jewish people. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They were a nation called by God to be a witness so the name of God will be glorified, but because of their sins, because of their hypocrisy, God's name is blasphemed. Isaiah 52.5 God bemoans the fact that His name is continually, every day, blasphemed because of you. Every day, continually, my name is trampled upon because of you. Open your Bibles to the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 17 through 32. Ezekiel 36, 17 through 32. We'll read it together. Let me read it for you. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, They defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. 
So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of His land? But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take from you the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, clean you from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Do you get the picture here? It was bad enough that they were bad in the land, but when they got scattered everywhere, they took with them their bad conduct. And so God's name was in a greater way denigrated, blasphemed among the Gentiles. Because they had only heard about the wickedness of Israel. But when they moved in, they saw firsthand the hypocrisy, the sinfulness of God's people, causing them to blaspheme God's name all the more. So God says, I have to act, not for your sake, but for the honor of my own name. And He makes that new covenant because of the honor of His own name. And it's happening today, all over again. That is why God will do whatever it takes to make us conform to the image of Christ. That is why God's great ambition is to make us holy for the sake of His own name, for the glory of His own name, for the honor of His own Word of God. Do you see How much is at stake in the way you and I live our lives? 
when we sin, if we sin, when we sin, it constitutes a form of blasphemy because that's the result in the world due to our conduct. Back to Titus, verse 8. Second purpose gives us the heart of what Paul is saying. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So that our opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. It literally means, the word shame literally means to blush because the opponent is so embarrassed. Because they have nothing bad to say about us. They're examining us. And we want to live lives. Because when they examine us, they will blush in sheer embarrassment because there is nothing to criticize. We are above reproach. They love to scandalize the Christian faith. They love to attack us at every opportunity. But oh, we are to live such lives when they try to do that. Just like Daniel. They can't find anything. Right? There's no, there's no evil. There's no embezzlement. There is no theft. There is no deceit. There is no lie. There is no compromise. Apart from our faith. And they're embarrassed because they see the purity of our lives. And by their own conscience, they see their own sinfulness. They see their own failings. We want to make them red-faced. We want to make them ashamed. Not to, not for ourselves, but for evangelism. Because may that shame cause them to be convicted of their own sinfulness and turn to Christ, the lifter of our heads. May it, may it cause them to trust no longer in themselves, but trust in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you experienced this or not. We've experienced this in our family. Our relatives, distant relatives, non-Christians, where it's so hard, they've heard the gospel, so hard to bring up the gospel, and they scrutinize, they examine, and they're looking for holes. And yet that's when you want to live right lives. So the more they look and more they see things that are right, it softens their heart to Christ, softens their heart for the gospel, and causes them to draw near to the Lord. And then finally, verse 10. I love this. In order that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. So the, the direct application is, you know, for all of you who are working and you have these awful bosses, managers over you, you have these co-workers that are just intolerable, right? And you live lives above reproach. Why? Because when you do that, you're adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, in your workplace, Right? You know, you might not have that Christian bumper sticker in your cubicle, right? You might not have your Bible open at strategic places in your office that non-believers might see it and know that you're a Christian. By you living a God-honoring life, you're adorning the doctrine of God, that you are uh, uh, our Savior. Now, what is that? How do we adorn it? 
You are showing them that we've been delivered from sin. We've been delivered from sin. Not perfectly, but we're characterized by purity. Marked by joy. Marked by holiness. We adorn it. It's cosmeo, cosmetics. Right? We put it on. It's visibly seen. People notice it. It makes God beautiful. Cosmeo. We adorn doctrine of God. It makes God more attractive. They, before they came into contact with you, they had a poor view of God. God has this, you know, this cruel taskmaster. Religion as this dull thing, this ugly, unattractive thing. They have lunch with you. They see you work. They work with you. You spend time with them. They dine at your home. They see your family. They see your children. They see your relationships. And you know what happens? You make God more beautiful to them. God looks more attractive. Right? Christ is more beautiful by your conduct at work as you strive to live lives worthy of Christ. Do you see what is at stake here? So that is our pursuit for the next several weeks. We have been fed so well with sound doctrine. Now, Let's get to the life. So if you're an older man of of Cornerstone, we have some good applications for you in weeks to come. Older women, just for you. Younger women, younger men. All you in ministry leading others. And for all the workers, tailor-made instructions for you. This one application, so many applications to come. This one. Um, don't pursue right life alone. Don't pursue it alone. That's not God's will. Right? God is, God's will for you is not to be a lone ranger. Right? Get on your horse, you know, right out to the wilderness to live out right life. God, when He saved you, He saved you into a, a local church. He baptized you in Christ and baptized you into the body of believers. Pursue and journey as a good sojourner with fellow Christians, with others who call upon the name of the Lord. Such joy there. Such sweetness there in fellowship, running this race with fellow believers. And may I, as your pastor, exhort to you to begin with those that are in your small groups, Begin with your flock members and start with those that are in your small groups and just open your heart to them. Be vulnerable. Confess. Share your sins, temptations, your struggles, your heartaches, your victories, your triumphs, your pursuits. We're ending out 2006 Man, have you been running the Christian race all these years by yourself? Man, like, the joys that you are missing out on. I mean, the power of the Christian life that's not given to you because you're, you're in it alone. You're running by yourself. 
there is such sweetness, such power God has granted to us in the church. Start with your small group and pursuing right life together. Just close, don't move anything. Just close eyes. Bow your heads. Don't move anything. Let's, if you just take a minute to pray for your pastors, your flock shepherds, and your small group leaders, and pray for those that are in your small group, then I'll close in prayer. Father, you are so good to us. You saved us and you did not leave us alone. You gave us the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, and he birthed the local church. He established it so that we might grow under the authority of the Word of God, ministered by the elders of the church, along with baptism and communion, study of the Word and prayer and fellowship and ministry, so that we might conform to the image of Christ. Lord, we praise You and ask You for strength, especially for the leaders of our church, that they will not give in to fear, give in to fear of man or anxiety or seeking to please man, but they would stand before You, O God, and have You as their vision. And and You would grant to them great love for You and great love for Your people, so much so that they would do more than just serve the church, do more than just teach the Word. Lord, they would pour themselves out, pour out their hearts to give themselves. They'll lay themselves down for the flock for Cornerstone Bible Church, for our church. Lord, would you give them such zeal, such devotion, such love. And Lord, that they would not back down when they're opposed or they would, because of love, all the more serve and give themselves to your people, for your people. And Lord, you would have heightened the gravity and importance of right life to each of us. We are so prone to deception and so many of us are already deceived because of sound doctrine, because of the Word of God, because of ultimately our flesh, sin in our flesh. Lord, would you deliver us from this deception and cause us to give ourselves fully for the for right life, to to obey the Scriptures, to be doers of the Word of God, so that no one might revile your Word, that opponents might be ashamed, and so that wherever we go, that we might make you beautiful, the people around us, that you might use our, our 
lowly lives for your grand purposes of displaying your glory throughout the world. Lord, we uh, ask you humbly, grant to each of us a courageous mindset to do whatever it takes to obey the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.